I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. On this edition of Parallax Views, we welcome back to the show retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, known for his time as Colin Powell's chief of staff in the years of the Bush presidency. He joins us on this edition of the program to discuss U.S. foreign policy and the military-industrial complex. In this conversation, we'll cover a number of different topics, including U.S. relations with regards to Israel, Russia, and China, the threat posed by nuclear weapons, and Colonel Wilkerson's thoughts on the recently passed away Colin Powell. All that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest I've been meaning to have on again. The last time we spoke was in the lead up to the election. Uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, how are you doing today? Doing well, except for the fact that I lost my wife of 55 years in November. That's been a real blow. My, my, my condolences, and I appreciate your making time to uh, come on the show in spite of uh, that recent development in your life. Thank you. So I initially had contacted you to come on because of the news uh, a few weeks back that APAC uh, had started a, uh, a new super PAC uh, to get involved in direct spending uh, on U.S. elections. And APAC, of course, for my listeners, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. I know you've commented before on issues related to uh, the relationship between U.S. and Israel and uh, matters of that nature. So I was curious to get your take on this development with APAC. It's another addition that will increase their influence over U.S. security and foreign policy, and for that matter, over our domestic policy. Um, I'm not in favor of it, but it is uh, within the law, I, I suspect, and it will just give Israel a lot more influence than it had before. I, I think it was motivated partly by the fact that the APAC, the one you just referred to, which um, rivaled the NRA and uh, what's the uh, AARP uh, and other such lobbies in terms of influence, was losing some of that influence. And yeah, they're also, nowhere. they have competition now from J Street, which is more moderate and more appealing, I think, right. to Democrats. And they also have uh, uh, at least one or two Arab groups uh, and Palestinian groups, uh, Palestinian Arab groups, that are um, not as nearly as powerful as APAC, but they at least are being heard from time to time. 
So they've lost a little bit. No, no more greater indication of APAC's loss of influence was the fact that President Obama was, was able to squeak the uh, joint agreement with Iran, the nuclear agreement with Iran in. Uh, so they, they, they branched out a little, if you will. They're trying to regain some of their lost power. So I'm curious, why do you think there was that loss of power uh, other than the things you just stated? Do you also think that there's an issue with uh, how APAC seems to have really thrown its weight behind Donald Trump? Has that also factored into this? I think it has. And I think that takes you back through that mechanism, at least. That's one way to go back to why they lost power. Netanyahu. And no one was closer to Donald Trump in terms of a foreign leader than Netanyahu. Um, I, I have heard from countless Jewish Americans, even those who are professed orthodox rather than liberal or reformed, uh, that they detest Netanyahu, that Netanyahu took Israel to places it shouldn't have gone and took the relationship to places it shouldn't have gone, really hurt the relationship. And most Jewish Americans understand intuitively, if not rationally, just how important the American relationship is to the existence of the state of Israel. So that bothered a lot of Jewish Americans. In regards to your own experiences uh, as the chief of staff under Colin Powell during the Bush administration, what are your insights personally onto in, in, in regards to the relationship uh, between the U.S. and Israel and, and foreign policy? It's a strange relationship in many respects. If, if you look at the overhang of guilt, as it were, for the Holocaust, and you look at the number of influential Jewish Americans living in America, uh, I guess it's explicable. But at the same time, it's inexplicable because we spend so much money that is rarely rewarded. We devastate our foreign affairs budget by giving some $6 billion plus dollars to Israel and then another $3 billion or so to Egypt to keep the peace treaty with Israel. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's not explicable in the sense of the return for that money. Israel is now very much so a strategic liability rather than a strategic asset. So it's, uh, when you do the numbers and you figure out how much money we have given to each Jewish citizen throughout the three decades plus we've been giving that money to Israel, it turns out to be we could have handed each Israeli citizen something like $1,000 every year. <laughs> um, it just doesn't make sense. It's uh, way, uh, way out of balance. Do you think that relationship is going to be changing over uh, the next few years or, or potentially the next decade or so? Because I know uh, I've read um, voices uh, from Israel that are saying you know, that the relationship between the U.S. and Israel may be changing going forward. There's concerns over that. Um, do you think that relationship is headed in a different direction? I, I know with uh, what you mentioned, the Iran deal under Obama, I think there's been concerns that things may go in a different direction. I think there's some people who are hopeful, uh, as you've just expressed, uh, on both sides of the coin. That is to say, they'd like to see Israel get a stronger relationship with the U.S., and then there are those who think the relationship is fraying somewhat in both countries, Israel and the United States, and probably within the international community, too. I frankly think that uh, with the current regime, President Biden and his people, Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken, and so forth, it's going nowhere but staying strong. And I can't see it really, and this is one of my concerns about it, 
I can't see it really atrophying over time. It might, but I don't see that. I see it suddenly coming to a juncture and uh, breaking. And when I say breaking, I mean the United States suddenly backs away from Israel abruptly. And Israel is left foundering and looking for another sugar daddy, if you will, whether it be China, Russia, or whomever. I think that's one reason you see these uh, uh, the so-called triumph of Trump's foreign policy in the Middle East, these agreements that Israel is making with countries that no one ever thought they'd make agreements with, like Riyadh. Um, this is an attempt to make what might come abruptly a little bit more uh, a little more tenable, a little more acceptable, um, because there are people who see the future, as I see it, as being untenable with regard to the relationship Israel's had for so long with the United States, and they don't see it atrophying over time. They see it being extremely catastrophic rupture when it does come. And I would not be surprised, given what I saw from Donald Trump and what I see still from his legions that are still active in this country, that anti-Semitism in the United States would rise majorly at the same time that this happened, which, of course, would threaten those Jewish Americans who are living in this country. Um, I don't see a good future for this all around. I see a very dangerous future. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Like, what do you, what what would the catastrophic rupture potentially look like? And I, I know we're speculating here a bit. Well, we get a coup in 2024, looking ever, ever more likely. Um, and all of a sudden, we have a president who, uh, whether it's Donald Trump or his lookalike, who's a little smarter, um, we all of a sudden have a very authoritarian state. And that state needs to stoke its masses and keep them hot and ready to do whatever it wants to do when it wants to do it. Well, one of the most powerful ways to do that is anti-Semitism. And so suddenly you have a rupture with the relationship with Jerusalem. Uh, and I say Jerusalem pointedly um, and the Zionist movement in Jerusalem. And you have a bugbear that this president can find that is more than just the Democrats. It's external, it's foreign. Um, very powerful. I mean, all you have to do is go back to 1933, 1939, 1940 to understand how powerful it is. And there are many Jewish Americans who are old enough, those in their late 70s, 80s, who will tell you that they have some concern over that because they know when anti-Semitism comes, when the pogrom starts, it's sudden and it, it sneaks up on you. And it's politicians who exploit that to increase and enhance their power. Uh, it's rarely ever something that's genuine in, in the heart. It may be genuine in the heart with the masses, but it's not genuine in the heart with the leadership. Uh, Hitler might have been an exception. Uh, it's just exploitation of the hatreds in order to increase one's power. That, that, that's why religion and science and secular activities in general have had so much problem throughout history. It's not because religion is bad or science or secularism is bad. It's because politicians in both camps use the other to exploit and build fear and conspiracy theories and so forth and gain power thereby. And now a word from our sponsors. 
Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. So with regards to uh, President Biden, I, I was hopeful at the beginning of his term that maybe we would see a little bit of a shakeup in regards to uh, U.S. foreign policy. Maybe I was being a little bit young and, and naive there, but we sort of heard a uh, a line that was more promoting this idea of restraint. And of course, we uh, got out of Afghanistan, uh, but it seems like a lot hasn't changed. I mean, we, we just did the arms deal uh, with Saudi Arabia, which is uh, causing a lot of trouble in, in Yemen. And we also... Uh, just passed a very massive uh, Pentagon budget, I believe uh, $770 billion or over. So why hasn't there been a, a sort of change despite maybe uh, rhetoric that would have indicated that at the beginning of Biden's term? You just answered your own question. <laughs> it's, it's very profitable, this sort of... Uh, President Obama said it to me this way in the Roosevelt Room in November of 2015, after seven years in the White House, quote, there is a bias in this town toward war, unquote. And then he spent the next 30 minutes telling us he didn't quite know what to do about it. Um, he's right. And it surprised me that it took him that long to figure that out. It took Libya, it took Afghanistan, it took shutting down Iraq and so forth to figure that out. But it's the military industrial complex. And I don't say that lightly. It is a power. It, it, it makes APAC look like a petty fogging organization. The military industrial complex has so much power over the Congress. That's why they got 768 billion plus this year. That's why they're headed towards a trillion dollar annually. If you just look at the projection by 2031 too, they'll be at a trillion dollars. That's hard 
hard money in terms of the American taxpayer. We're going to we're going to wind up about that time frame, 2031, 2032, with even moderate inflation, with no discretionary federal spending. And yet no one's doing anything about it. It's because there are so many powerful people who profit off the things that presidents have to do. And then the second reason, I've known Joe Biden for a long time. Powell worked with Biden when he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and when he wasn't. And Biden's philosophy is not that different from the philosophy of other presidents whom we've had in this complex time period since World War II, and certainly in the period we've had since 9-11, where people have just made humongous profits off counterterrorism and off terrorism in general. As long as those profits are rolling in, a president is going to be very reluctant to back away from the political money that comes into their packs and otherwise uh, from these groups. Do you think that could uh, lead to greater problems going down you know, the road in a few years? Because I feel like looking at a lot of the polling, uh, for instance, with the Saudi arms deal, uh, a lot of Americans were very much uh, against that. And I think a lot of Americans were very supportive of um, getting out of Afghanistan. I, I feel like there may be a sentiment in the public that is more wary of war, especially after um, Afghanistan and Iraq. And yet, at the same time, we have this military industrial complex that has a vested interest in keeping, uh, I would say, the war state uh, going as it is. Uh, do you think that's going to lead to a lot of conflict going forward? Um, let me just say one thing. First, um, it's not just the people like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, Grumman, and so forth. It's ExxonMobil because DOD is the biggest buyer of fossil fuels in America. So it, you've got all kinds of players around the military industrial complex, so to speak, who are doing what the military industrial complex is doing. <laughs> They're wanting war. They're wanting DOD to consume even more fossil fuels and so forth. Um, but to, directly to your question, I, I think what we've got is a situation where, like gun control, you know, polls show 90% plus of Americans want some kind of gun control. You'd be, a, I think, a flaming idiot not to want some kind of gun control, given what we're doing to our children and others in this country every month. And yet they can't get it. They can't get it because there's so much money and so much influence from the gun lobby that the Congress is reluctant to vote against that money. Well, multiply that times 10 in this case, and that's that's part of your reason. I think you're right. I think Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya soured the American people on this adventurism, this, this constant war. Um, but the Congress is not going to listen to the American people. They're going to do what they do to get their money in their packs and so forth. And they're going to continue to vote for these huge defense budgets. Um, it's, it's a vicious chain is what it is. And it's, in, it's incredibly difficult to break it. I'm not sure it is breakable until an emergency or a catastrophe or something occurs that will break it. And we're looking at one staring us right in the face with the climate crisis. And there's no way we can continue to spend this money on defense when it has absolutely nothing to do. In fact, it's counter to doing what's necessary to meet the climate crisis. DOD is the biggest fossil fuel consumer. If it were a country, DOD would rank right there with Portugal on the list of 190 plus countries in terms of fossil fuel consumption. It would be 55th. So 
you know, there, we have to stop doing the things we're doing if we're going to meet the climate crisis. So this is two catastrophes that are going to meet each other and begin to eat each other up. I, I like what you've also said before that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of things eating up our, our democracy. I've heard you say that, you know, in a lot of ways, the national security state is yes. eating up our democracy. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that uh, a little bit, this, this national security state that is really threatening our democratic values. We took the Cold War template, which was uh, communism is got to be fought on every front at every moment. Otherwise, it'll overwhelm us. And we took 9-11 and we were searching for a new monolithic threat we could deal with that way. And we took terrorism and said, OK, this is replacing communism. Now we're going to spend the same amount of money on countering terrorism. We're going to keep the same people rich. We're going to have the same philosophy with, in terms of national security. It's going to be the preeminent goal in our country. Those That first decade after 9-11, I was in the government for, of course, three or four years of it. Um, I was close to the government for the entire decade. And I got to tell you, I, I was stunned sometimes at how people decided that they would cast the republic away in order to prevent another terrorist attack, 9-11. Well, I, I figured out pretty quickly, I'm not totally stupid, that a lot of it was money. A lot of it was political power. So they came along with this template with using this counterterrorism as the new communism. That's what the national security state does. If it loses a threat, it finds a new one. And we even manufactured some out of whole cloth. We decided that we would violate what President H.W. Bush had said about NATO and its expansion. Bill Clinton decided he would just expand NATO, and every president after him decided he would keep on expanding NATO. So we're creating another threat in Russia and Putin. Um, we do this because it's conducive to keeping the state alive and breathing and well and well funded. And politically, it's very conducive to the kind of people who want to be in power and hold that power for longer and longer periods of time, whether it's in the Senate or the House or, God forbid, it's in the presidency, where we don't even have the Republican desire to elect a new president every four years. Instead, we just decide we won't want to stay in there. Where do you think we're headed in regards to uh, since you mentioned Russia, uh, we have on one hand uh, the U.S. and Russia uh, tangling over the Ukraine right now. And then on the other hand, we also have uh, the U.S. and China tangling over uh, Taiwan. It, it seems like we could be uh, playing with fire uh, with these two scenarios. We are. And I'm very happy to see yesterday I was I received a little bit of a briefing Um what we're doing with Putin right now after Biden and Putin's telephone call. And it looks as if we have developed diplomacy that if we can execute it and Putin executes his side of it, we may be able to walk back a little bit from the crisis with Ukraine and Kazakhstan, as a matter of fact, too. Um, will that be satisfactory to the extreme conservative element in this country that wants to test Putin on every every moment at every moment and in every way. And I, I don't discount members of the Democratic Party who want to do that too. And I don't discount the fact that President Biden might feel that way somewhat. 
understanding what his, his view towards Russia had been before. But it has gotten out of hand, and I think both leaders have figured that out. And now they're going to execute some diplomacy that will make it a little bit more tenable. Taiwan, I don't see anything happening there other than it getting worse and worse and worse. And the South China Sea is the same way. Other aspects of China's Space Road Initiative seem to, instead of being the positive thing that we should be treating it as, uh, a huge Marshall Plan, if you will, if it's kept within certain boundaries. And I think that could be done if the international community was concerned about doing it and did it, EU, us, and so forth. But this is a potential to lift a lot of people who otherwise have no prospects out of poverty um, and using Chinese money and entrepreneurship to do it. As long as it's positive or, or mostly positive, it's something we should be encouraging, not fighting. And yet we're jeopardizing that by this untenable situation we've created with China, principally over Taiwan and the South China Sea. So I hope we execute some diplomacy there. I'm not confident of it, though, because neither Jake Sullivan nor Tony Blinken know squat about China or about Asia, no matter what they might protest to the contrary. And they don't know very much at all about China, nor does Biden, in my view. Um, so this, this, this is a difficult thing to deal with when you're dealing with a country that everyone has no empathy for, let alone sympathy for. Um, so China, I see, is a, a ultimately a, a bigger problem than Russia. Russia is a gas station with a capital and a very astute leader. Uh, I may despise Putin as a person, but I have to admit he's a very astute, strategically competent leader. He's played a very weak hand extremely well all over the map, um, from Syria to Ukraine. So that that's a less of a hardcore threat. It's mostly a threat because Putin's so much smarter than we are. And by the way, the NKVD and the GRU are far better intelligence outfits than our CIA. This problem we've had with 98% hit the target missiles, mostly from RPAs, drones, remotely piloted aircraft, is not a problem of the technology. It's a problem of the intelligence. Uh, the CIA intelligence, for example, is only actionable and right about 30% of the time. Well, if you're looking at the NKVD, the civilian side of Russian intelligence, or the GRU, the military side of Russian intelligence, far superior. I suspect their record is 60, 70% accuracy. Uh, and they're mostly accurate right now about our democracy. And they're using every tool at their disposal to help our democracy fall apart. So why would Putin want to go to war with the United States or China for that matter either? We're destroying ourselves. Just sit back, have a cup of tea, have a glass of vodka if you're a Russian and watch us fall apart. That's what's happening. Um, so if anyone starts these wars in a conventional sense, it's gonna be us. And that's sad to say, because they aren't going to end conventionally. They'll probably end with nuclear weapons. So I was actually going to get into that next was, um, you know, I was reading um, a CFR report recently by uh, actually, of all people, Philip Zelikow. And I, I know you and Zelikow have very different views on Saudi Arabia and, and the question of uh, how Saudi Arabia relates to 9-11. But you both seem to agree that uh, a war with China uh, over Taiwan is not a good idea. Um, he's very in favor of preventing that from happening. 
And I mean, I think there's been what I, 18 different war games over uh, Taiwan that have been, you know, simulations done where it does not end well. Uh, so do you think that there's an awareness that war with China would be a, a, a very bad idea? Uh, and I guess I, I feel as if we're in a situation where China and the U.S. rely on each other a great deal. Uh, we're in a sort of globalized economic situation. So will that be what sort of keeps us from going to war over Taiwan? The economic situation certainly kept us from it in a time period when two people, Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, and Dick Cheney, Vice President of the United States, wanted a new Cold War with China. George W. Bush understood how important China was to Walmart, not to put too fine a point on it. And, and he let Colin Powell do what Colin Powell wanted to do with China, which was to keep the relationship sound, firm, and not dangerous. Um, that's not the case now, and, and Phil knows that. There are people who want to use China as a new Cold War adversary and think they can handle it, think they can manage it so it wouldn't go to war. Now, all the simulations I've ever been involved with, which you just suggested, which are quite a few with China, end up with a nuclear option being explored. Generally speaking, in most of the games I was involved, the civilian leaders of the game won't let the military go there. The game stops there. That's what's happened, of course, is we've attrited each other's air forces and each other's navies. And we're not about to put our minuscule little ground force on the ground in China. And China doesn't have the power projection capacity to do anything with regard to landing forces in the United States or in our allies' territory. So you just sit there and look at each other. You've got your Air Force bleeding badly. You've got your Navy bleeding badly, both sides. And then someone says, well, let's get their attention with some nuclear weapons. Then they'll stop. <laughs> and then the civilian leader of the game says, I don't think so. That's not what escalation theory teaches us. So we're stopping this war game right here. And I think that's reality. I think that's the way it would end. Only I don't think the civilian leader would necessarily say, let's stop it here. I think they'd be caught in a political trap and they'd wind up because we would have lost so many men and women. One carrier, we lose 5,000 men and women instantly. And the Chinese will sink a, a couple of aircraft carriers. So that's 10,000 Americans did in about an hour. Uh, that's not casualties Americans are used to. So you want to get them really up and, and angry and saying to the president, do something, do something. And a president caught in that political trap winds up using nuclear weapons and doesn't stop there. Then you go to a strategic exchange and, you know, basically you've done what climate change is going to do over the century in a couple of hours, uh, because it would be the end of the human race as we know it, at least if we had a general exchange. And it's dicey that way with Putin also, because they still have 4,000 plus. And you're talking about a desperate leader and desperate times, and that might be us too, because we'd probably lose the first conventional battle with Russia on the ground where he has interior lines and we have exterior lines. We'd probably lose it. We'd probably take 10,000 casualties in the first 24 hours. So mm -hmm, Americans are gonna be pushing their president there too. Um, not, these are not, they're not scenarios I wanna even contemplate. 
they're dangerous norms, which is why I say we need to stop and we, we need to use diplomacy. I was going to ask in that regard, you know, there are these figures that do seem to think they can manage a, a sort of new Cold War, a Cold War 2.0, but I, I've always found that very confusing because to me, one false move or one escalation that leads to uh, another escalation, it gets very unpredictable very quickly. And is it just a matter of hubris that these people aren't thinking of the potential consequences? What, what, what's going on there? Thank you. Hubris is a big part of it. Arrogance. They think they can handle this. Um, they remind me of people like Robert McNamara, who thought that body count in Vietnam was an indication that he was winning. They're, they're, they're that sort of people. And I don't mean to uh, criticize McNamara too badly because he's one of the few people who uh, felt some sorrow about what he did, wrote a book that essentially apologized. Um, but that's the kind of mindset you have. You have someone like George Bundy, who was the national security advisor to Kennedy and then switched over to Johnson. And he tells Johnson, well, you know, what's 58,000, 60,000 dead Americans if it saves American prestige? Or you have someone like General LeMay who says, well, if we lose 20 cities, if we lose 20 cities, totally lose 20 cities, that's all right. We will have saved America. We will have saved our honor. You have people like that. You have people in the military and out of the military like that who think the way you just said, and I think, is impossible to conceive of someone thinking. And yet I've been there. I've listened to them. I've seen them. They exist. So before we wrap up here, um, and if, if you don't want to talk about this, I can understand. I'm sure you've been asked about it before. Uh, but the since we've talked, uh, the, the first time we talked uh, about a year or so ago, um, Colin Powell has passed away. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on um, Powell and, and his legacy, because I think a, a lot of people who were very against the Iraq war um, will lay all the blame down on Colin Powell, whereas I think it's a bit more complicated than that. And I think that Colin Powell was uh, very much used almost as a uh, as sort of the, the scapegoat for everything. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that as someone who worked with him. Well, thank you for the chance to speak on that. I went to the memorial service and I was, uh, I was really torn up uh, because we had not, how shall I put it? We had not reconciled completely. And he died on me <laughs> and, and kept that reconciliation from happening. My fault, he was 86, I should have known better. But the day he passed and we were informed of it, I've probably got two dozen requests to go online, to go on TV, to write an op-ed, whatever. I only took one. And I took it because I had done interviews with Boston NPR's on point, Meghna Chakrabarti, before. And I knew Meghna would treat my interview properly. And she did. Uh, I asked every American who cares anything about Colin Powell to listen to that interview. That interview was edited by Megna, of course, and she did a marvelous job. The full transcript is there, uh, but the one that aired is just a marvelous job of editing. And in that, I addressed, at least in part, the question you just asked. Um, and I said a number of things, but I, I wanted Americans to understand what it means to be a black man having risen in a white man's world 
all the way to the pinnacle of military power, and then to just short of the pinnacle of civilian power. And he could have been the president. In November of 1995, he decided not to run, but he probably could have been the president. What does it mean to someone who is a person who is a lieutenant had to drive up and down the East Coast with his wife and not stop? He packed chicken in the trunk of his car. His wife would make chicken baskets because they didn't want to be embarrassed by going to the colored only window behind the Dairy Queen or behind the McDonald's or whatever it was. And that's the way it was, especially once you got into Virginia and Point South. Um, that was his upbringing. And then all of a sudden, he's made it to the pinnacle of power. And you suddenly are going to say to the president, the son of the man who had a lot to do with putting you there, H.W. Um, Bush, uh, that you're leaving him, you're resigning, you're not going to be in that position anymore, you're that ungrateful, you're that disloyal. And white people can't understand that. I can't understand that. The only reason I have any insight into it is because of what he taught me about an African-American's experience in this country. Um, so that's part of his loyalty, if you will. People accusing him of being too loyal, of being a typical soldier, too loyal. Well, yes, he was loyal because he felt he was obligated to be loyal. And he did his best. He did his best to convince the president of the problems associated with staying in Iraq, with the dilemma the president would be confronted with. Um, and the president didn't listen to him. The president went ahead and did it anyway. And his vice president was very instrumental in causing the president to be that way. He used a metaphor with me one time after he'd come back from a National Security Council meeting. He said, the president pulls out his 45 and starts shooting. Dick Cheney eggs him into doing that. I don't know how to, how to get the president to put his 45 back in his holster. I got to figure that out. That was a relationship in that first term. In the second term, it was different. The president figured out what Cheney was doing to him and more or less put Cheney in a closet. But that was the first term. Um, and you know, Powell had a choice to resign. People say he should have resigned. And I say a week later, Condi would have, Condi Rice, the national security advisor, would have been secretary of state, as she subsequently was. And everything would have continued as it was. And Colin Powell wouldn't have been there to attenuate some of the rough edges. Um, you can't say he was indispensable, but you can certainly say that he knew it wouldn't do a bit of good for him to resign. They go to war anyway. So I, I think what I said in that interview with Megna was my best shot at describing Colin Powell to the American people. The last thing I want to say about that, that and then we'll, we'll close out, is, um, you know, I, I get why people get worked up about the Iraq war and, and get very upset about it and, and lay a lot of blame at Colin Powell. I get the reaction. But to just single out Colin Powell, to me, is you know, wrongheaded. And, and also, I, I think it's important. My understanding was that there were people within the sort of Bush administration that did not like uh, Colin Powell very much. So I, I think there was always a, a sort of conflict between Powell and other people within the Bush White House. You're right. I think that Richard Cheney, for example, 
took a view away from his Secretary of Defense time when Powell was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that Powell, even though Cheney didn't tell Powell this, but his reaction to some of the things Powell did later as Secretary of State would corroborate my view here, that Powell had usurped some of his glory during the first Gulf War. That Powell was the one that went on TV and said, first we're gonna cut it off and then we're gonna kill it, referring to Saddam's army in Kuwait. A remark that even my students remember today, even if they don't remember Colin Powell, they remember that remark. Um, and, and I think Cheney brought that jealousy into the White House with him. And he evinced it each time he pushed his finger in Powell's chest and said, you're not the chairman anymore. This is not your business. War is the president's business and the secretary of defense's business. So there was that. And then Dr. Rice, too. I think Dr. Rice, there was some jealousy there, African-American woman of African-American man. And we'd have to talk forever to discuss that. You might want to talk to Alma Powell, another African-American woman who has a view of Condi Rice um, that's more like what an African-American view would be. But I know the tension that was there, and I know how naive Colin was. He never thought there was tension there. He never thought there was jealousy there. Um, we had well, a bet. You saw it firsthand, too, uh, working under Colin Powell. Yes, we had a bet. I bet him Condi would be the next Secretary of State, and he responded to me with laughter. And he said, she's fed up with this mess. She's going back to Stanford. She's going back to academia. She's sick of Washington. I said, want to bet $50? She isn't your replacement. <laughs> Told me to get out of his office. He wasn't going to bet me $50. And then he bet me later. Um, so he was naive about Condi. There were people in the administration who maybe didn't like him is not the right phrase, but were jealous of him. And jealousy is a nasty ingredient for collegiality inside the National Security Council. Jealousy is not something that works well. Well, I want to let you get going. I appreciate you're going for about 40 minutes here. I know we'd agreed on 30, so I, I appreciate that. Uh, is there anything you would like my listeners to get out of the conversation we had here today? What, what's the key issue that you think uh, people should be thinking about when they're listening back on this? Don't back away when people are talking about nuclear weapons and when people are talking about the climate crisis. They're the two things we're confronting that will make everything else, Ukraine, China, look like child's play. I mean, we are talking about the human race. Uh, that sounds apocalyptic. It is ap ap apocalyptic. We're talking about this planet going right on. It won't care one whit. It'll just go right on. Both crises, but the human race won't. Uh, we'll destroy it with nuclear weapons instantaneously almost in terms of geologic time or we'll destroy it over the next century with regard to the climate crisis. So these are the two things that Americans in particular, but people in the world in general, ought to be thinking about and ought to be thinking about doing something about. Arms control with respect to the first one, reduction. And with respect to the second one, let's stop doing what we're doing in our economy and otherwise to pollute the, the, the planet. Thank you again. Uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks for having me.
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Hopefully soon here, I should be starting up a new Discord page for Patreon supporters. I've been trying to figure out a way to relaunch the Discord, so look for more news on that in the future. Also, I have to give a producer's credit shout-out to my $10 tier and above supporters. So, producer's credit shout-outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, and Matthew Ho. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above at my Patreon page. There's also a $1 and $5 tier if you'd like to support me that way on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, along with our few great sponsors that help keep this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.